This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Muwinina people and of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise them as the traditional owners and continuing custodians of the land on which we are recording the podcast, and we acknowledge their elders, past, present, and emerging. Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 84 for Monday 11th of March 2019. I'm Jeremy Sear, and joining me each week will be a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening in our country, what's likely to happen, and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is a returning guest host, Corinne. Welcome back, Corinne. Yay! Hey, thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. I feel like what I have to offer you this week is a bunch of infuriating stuff, starting with our delightful Prime Minister on International Women's Day. I feel a bit bad about it, but I also feel like it's cathartic to get it get it through our systems and get it out of our systems and, and, and you sort of dress it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's like when you're um, you fancy restaurant, you're eating eating a meal that costs a lot but it's not really great. You just got to gobble down the bit that tastes like shit first, get it over and done with, so we'll be fine. Wait, which part of the analogy is the fancy restaurant here? Because we're talking about Scott Morrison talking nonsense. Well, we're the fancy restaurant. Ah, okay. So we're, we're promising <laughs> that there's some delicious, some kind of spectacular dessert coming afterwards. Oh, I'm sure there will be. Look, I feel I feel that we've got some nice grabs that will in, will entertain and amuse people yeah. as well. Yeah, no, it's worth it. It's worth it. Well, but but okay, <clears throat> everybody, we're going to eat our greens, which is listening to Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, on International Women's Day. One of the other female members of my cabinet, Kelly O'Dwyer, said at the press club last year, our Minister for Women, gender equality isn't about pitting girls against boys. See, we're not about setting Australians against each other, trying to push some down to lift others up. That's not in our values. That is an absolutely liberal value that you don't push some people down to lift some people up. And that is true about gender equality too. We want to see women rise. But we don't want to see women rise um, only on the basis of others doing worse. We want everybody to do better and we want to see the, the rise of women in this country be accelerated to ensure that the overall pace is maintained. So Chelly said it isn't about pitting girls against boys or women against men. It's not about conflict, she said. It's about recognising that girls and women deserve an equal stake in our economy and our society. And that's what we're achieving and that we still have a long way to go. So I think there is a positive uh, in that the liberal values um, is that everybody does better, according to this grab. And that is what feminism actually is, like that everybody comes out ahead. But it's not what they implement and it's not what is demonstrated by how the Liberal Party lives their life, goes about day to day. Yeah, I think what feminism means is that we all benefit from ending the patriarchy. Well, we don't all benefit from ending the patriarchy because obviously the patriarchy benefits a certain class of of powerful, rich, white, privileged men who do very nicely at the top of it, um, even whilst they're 
freedom to be themselves is constrained within rigid gender roles, but there are some people for whom those gen- rigid gender roles are the ones that they would have chosen if they had a choice, so they're not really they're not really oppressed by the patriarchy. They are the patriarchy and the people for whom the patriarchy exists. But for almost everyone else, which includes a lot, you know, majority of men and majority of human beings, yeah. obviously reforming those rigid roles and the constraints they put on all of us is probably to the benefit of most of us. But when Scummo talks about not putting people down, he's clearly talking about when there's a fight to put women in positions of power in the sort of fight that the Liberal Party has, which is that they don't have any quotas and therefore have a tiny percentage of women in the top roles at all. And in fact, it's falling and <laughs> falling dramatically faster uh, as in backroom <laughs> fights, they, they bully yeah. the women into leave, quitting the party. See Julia Banks. Yeah. Uh, the chase has satirised Scummo's version of, hey, everybody can benefit with uh, a headline that was to the effect of that Scummo is now promising that uh, the Liberal Party will have in winnable seats uh, – now it'll have 50% women and 75% men. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's sort of like, obviously, if they've got the vast majority of the people in power in their party are men, then yes, they would require, it would be a change where the men who are being pushed there not on merit, because unless you believe that men are instinctively more meritorious than women, the fact that more, you know, much, they're much a greater uh, overrepresentation of men in their party would indicate that their system is not one that rewards merit, or it would be 50-50. So it either, it either is not a system based on merit, or they're saying that women are not as meritorious as men. Like, you can't... It's, it's one or the other, guys. Yep, definitely is. And I feel comfortable saying guys mm-hmm. in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a Venn diagram of that has nothing in it. It's just two circles. And... Scummo's remarks are such an obviously idiotic thing to say on International Women's Day that it actually got picked up and uh, run overseas as well. In order for people overseas to laugh at how ridiculous our Prime Minister is, uh, such as this grab on CNN. In Australia, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, his comments have been, you know, sparking some outrage after saying this on International Women's Day. We want to see women rise. But we don't want to see women rise... um, only on the basis of others doing worse. We want everybody to do better. Okay, so the logic there. As you can imagine, Twitter just lit up with criticism over those comments. The Australian Senator Sarah Hansen-Young tweeted this, quote, um, men who are threatened or worried of women achieving equality is the bloody problem, unquote. Now, independent MP Karen Phelps gave the Prime Minister the emoji treatment, posting a single wide-eyed shocked face in response to his comments. Morrison has long been criticised for the lack of female representation among his party's leadership. Is that the best emoji that she could have picked to illustrate how ridiculous Scummo's remarks were? Oh, what would be the best emoji? There'd, there'd be an eggplant. And... <laughs> so, that, if you wanted to do an emoji that represented the front bench of the Liberal Party, it would be you'd, you'd just have um, um, eggplant, 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 then a red X. Eggplant, yes. eggplant, eggplant, red eggs. Like, they've lost a lot since, the ministry, <laughs> since they won the, yeah, since the last election. But they've got an alternative explanation for that. This is some audio from a couple of weeks ago from the member for Mali, so that's up where Mildura is. This is uh, uh, Mr Broad, who uh, you might recall having lost his uh, ministerial portfolio as a result of that weird blackmail sexting thing where he was talking, trying to tell uh, uh, the Sugar Daddy website, he was trying to tell the lady he was a, um, he was like James Bond. and he, he, you know, the one Oh, was, I can talk to this. He's running his finger up her back and he's going to say, good day, mate. That yes, yes, hot. yes. And not pay her. Yes, that one. Mm. This is this is him trying to explain why it is you know a reason other than the Liberal Party being massively uh, biased against women as to why they're unrepresented at the top of the party. 
but politics is certainly grueling. It's very grueling on uh, people who want to have a family, and the very nature of biology is that it's you know it is tougher on women. It's because of the women's want to have families, Corinne. I mean, who else is going to look after the kids? The man? Have you ever heard of a stay-at-home dad? No. And we have, like, vaginas and uteruses and it makes our brain go crazy and we get all emotional. Well, look, sometimes you have to breastfeed in Parliament if you're a woman with a child and that breaks Parliament for some reason. Yes. Well, absolutely it would. Boobs in Parliament is just not on. It's too distracting. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I mean, even even mentioning it just made it distracting enough that I can't actually think of uh, an appropriate <laughs> remark to add. And, and I feel that I should add because, of course, that's one of the other things that Parliament needs, which is men uh, adding to whenever a woman says something. Like, it's very important that if something is said, if a point is made strongly, it just needs to be restated by a male voice so that, you know, it's it, it really sinks in. Yes, hmm. yes, no, this is absolutely true, yeah. How could you have stay-at-home fathers? What would they even do? Checks out my calendar. Oh, wait, that is exactly what I do. There's nothing to do with being a father. Like, it's just, you know, fair to kid, you're done for the day. <laughs> that is not actually totally accurate. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually going to – I'm still angry this week because of Scott Morrison hurting my, my little daughter's feelings. Right. He used her favourite word, um, idiotically – Idiotically, uh, this, this is his classic line that he seems to think will work for him, although uh, like the uh, uh, screaming about offshore detention and uh, trying desperately to get some boats to come by screaming in the direction of Indonesia, the waters are now weak. Nonetheless, the gap between Labor and the Liberals is still widening. It's now 54.46 this morning uh, on oh, Newsport. Oh, is it really? Yeah, right. no, it's getting worse for them, so it's not working for him. But he likes to try and deflect any questions about the shonky crap going on in his party as they wrought their way out of government. He likes to try to avoid talking about it by, by being like, it's in a bubble, a special bubble that I don't have to deal with. You you guys can want to talk about all of these things that I don't want to talk about, but I put them in a bubble. They're a bubble that ordinary Australians don't care about. Ignore the polls. Ordinary Australians don't care about them. Shut up. They don't care about them. It's in a bubble. So here he is this week. I'm going to play you the audio, and then I'm going to play you the audio as it, as it you know caused disruption in our household. <laughs> Sounds good. See, I'm focused on what I need to do for the future of the country. I don't get distracted by all the bubble noise on these things. I know others do. I know it's terribly interesting to all of those who ride inside the bubble. Australians don't live in the bubble. Australians live out here where you want your roads upgrade, where you want jobs, where you want to ensure that small and family businesses have a future. These are the things that are outside the bubble. I'll live what belongs in the bubble in the bubble. I've just realised that I'll play... I'll play it again with the the way it damages the family uh, in a moment. But I've just realised what he's like. It's all terribly interesting. I've just realised what that reminds me of. It's a dickhead teacher being like, oh, you people at the back, I'm sure, sure your conversation is all terribly interesting. That's, that, 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 that's, that's exactly what that sarcasm is. That, that... Anyway, my kids aren't up to school yet, so I don't have any particular stories from that to, to relay. But this is, this is the Prime Minister getting my daughter's hopes up. And yet, Scott Morrison did not come down here, go to the back garden, and blow bubbles for my daughter. He raised her hopes and, and just didn't do it. And I mean, and that's a prime minister out there who's not being responsible to the nation's children and or parents who have to go out there and now blow bubbles. No, it's not. It's not. It's it's letting the uh, letting the nation down. And what has happened to the prime minister who goes around hugging babies and doing all that? No, 
He's, he's doing the opposite. He's a monster. You don't use the word bubble in a place where children might be listening. No, no. It's outrageous. Outrageous. I mean, he might as well be swearing. Yes. <laughs> bubble. Bubble. That's just, you shouldn't be using that word. <laughs> Scumbo's having a fairly bad campaign already, and the attempt they had this week to try and pretend that they were now doing something about climate change, but I don't really know who they think they're fooling, but they kept up with this weird line, and I'll, mm. I'll play Scummo doing this, and I'll play you Angus Taylor uh, on Insiders trying the same thing. So the, the, before you listen to it, if, you haven't, if you're not up on what the figures were, the figures they're talking about revealed that Australian emissions have risen consistently over the last five years. So since yeah, they got rid of the yeah. carbon price, up, 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 up. There is a minor blip in the last quarter where they've gone slightly down. But over the last year, they've gone up by much more than that. So over the year, they're up. In a particular quarter, they've temporarily <laughs> gone down. But, I mean, it's not, you yes. know, these graphs of emissions aren't a straight line. They're just no, very much no. like a straight line, but they do wobble a little. So this is, this is the coalition trying to rely really heavily on a, ti- on a tiny blip for one quarter and pretending that the other figures don't matter. It's like, look, the only emissions that count are the ones that happened in this brief three-month period. Everything else... Nothing to do with us. Doesn't matter. It's just that three-month period, which, by the way, is also in the past. Like, it's not the three months up to the time that he's speaking. It's the last three months' figures that have been released. So they have almost certainly gone up again since. So here's Scott Morrison talking to Frank Kelly and then Angus Taylor talking to Barry Cassidy on Insiders. Takes us to climate. According to the Weather Bureau, This our country has just endured its hottest summer on record. Uh, we've also seen just this week the government's most up-to-date figures on emissions levels show that carbon output continues to rise. Well, it actually went down off the last one, Fred. No, the last the, for the year on, to on the, the last quarterly, quarter. On the, on the quarterly result, it actually went down. So I just thought we should point that out. Yeah, but it, the over the year to September 2018, emissions were up 0.9%. But I, I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying it actually went down in the last quarter. These numbers do jump around a bit. Okay, but the government keeps telling us emissions are falling. Your own data shows that over the past year, up to September 2018, they didn't fall, they went up. Well, emissions fell 1.4% relative to the June quarter. That's actually what happened. That's driven by the lowest quarterly emissions from the electricity sector in more than a decade. So um, these numbers do jump about, but our emissions reductions targets are actually based on a a budget for abatement uh, to 2030. And I set that out very clearly on Monday as how we're going to meet that commitment. That was on Friday, the 1st of March. Uh, two days later on Sunday, the 3rd of March, Angus Taylor popped up on Insiders and was saying the same thing, even though, again, quite obvious that he, what, the, what the truth was. There's less carbon in the atmosphere, and we take the view that that, that is something well, that is reasonable yeah. to include in, in how we're thinking about the 2030 well, There are not less emissions in the atmosphere, and we'll get to that in a moment. Well, no, 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 that's, well, that's wrong, Barry. That, well, there there are, is less carbon in the atmosphere because we beat our Kyoto targets. It's as simple as that. But let's go to emissions now. They're up. Emissions are up over the last five years, not down. Well, well, actually, the latest greenhouse gas report that came out last week says yes. that emissions are down by over, over 1% in the electricity sector, which no, is, no, no, they're, which they're, is in they're, my area. They're up by 1% no, no, over no, a year. No, 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 you're wrong, Barry. And a report came out last week saying they are coming down and uh, this, is the energy, down, this is the Energy Department report. The, 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 no, this is the Greenhouse Gas Inventory report. Yes. They are coming down uh, and the department rightly believes they're going to continue to go down. Uh, and the result of this is we will reach not just our Kyoto targets, and we're still in the Kyoto period, we will reach our Paris targets. Uh, are you talking about total, total emissions across total the economy? Emissions. 
Total emissions are coming down. They're right up now. by 0.9 per cent over the, the year. In the last quarter, they've come down yes, one but and not, a half percent. Not, not a quarter. O over the year, they're, they're up by 0.9 percent, and they have increased every year for the last five years. Well, well, they are coming down right now, Barry. And if we go right back, when we got into government, that's not what the we, figures say. Well, I'm telling you what the <laughs> figures were from the report that came out last week, and you should have a have a read of that report because 1.4 percent down, three and a half percent down in the electricity You're relying sector. on one but quarter, we, where for the well, last well, five hang, years hang, the figures have shown an increase. Hang on, hang on, Barry. Let's go back and look at the extended period of time. When we got into government, there was a deficit to reach Kyoto of $755 million. Well. That's what, no, no, this is important because it is the total emissions that you uh, emit over a time period that matters. That's what matters. Yes. Not, not a single point in time. That's what mm. matters. 755 million tonnes. Now, we've turned that around to a positive, a carryover of 367 million tonnes. So that's a 1.1 billion tonne turnover. Now, mm. you know, it, it, was like, it was like the deficits we inherited from Labor when we got into government. They hadn't done the hard work. Well, as they a, hadn't got to the point where we were going to reach emissions, Kato. Emissions we actually... Kato in, you, you talk about surpluses and deficits. Emissions actually fell fell during the Gillard period because of the, uh, the price on carbon and then started to increase again once that price on carbon was uh, eliminated. Well, look, there's no doubt that Labor did a lot of damage to the economy when they were in power reduced and that didn't emissions. have an impact. They now, reduced emissions. Well, hey, wasn't that just like a Clark and Dore interview? It's going up. No, it's down. No, it's up. No, it's down. It's a classic uh, tactic used by climate denialists to take a data set and cherry pick a section of time or a section of the data um, to prove their point, which doesn't prove the trend at all. No. All of these data sets go up and down, same as weather goes up and down, same as, I don't know, GDP or whatever goes up and down. Um, and so they're just picking the very end, which has a blip, comes down, overall trend goes up. And I thought it was interesting too that when he's talking about, and let's look back at an extended period of time then, it's only for their term, and this is a big part of the problem, especially when it comes to climate environment, is that they can only look at political terms. Well, also, what does he mean? There was when we came in, there was a deficit to reach Kyoto, but was he mean that they just hadn't reached the Kyoto target yet? But we know that, like, if you look at the graphs of emissions, they go up and up and up and up until um, the carbon price comes in, then they go down, mm. then Abbott axes it, mm. and they go up again. Like, it mm -hmm. is really obvious that in terms of meeting our emissions, the carbon price was definitely working. Yes. And, I mean, I know that Liberals would be like, well, sure, it was wrecking the economy, uh, but, you know, that's, that's why, uh, you know, that's why the, the electricity prices were so high, because we've all noticed since 2013 our electricity prices being low. Have you noticed that, Corinne? I've noticed my electricity prices being really low since, since the Liberals oh, have been in power. So low, so low. But electricity prices, the price in that is predominantly transmission. It's got nothing to do with production. No. And they like to try and blame the renewable sector for energy prices going up, even though they've actually sabotaged the renewable sector since they've been in power. Um, but they also like to blame the renewable sector for whenever there's power failures. So they like to scream that uh, when Victoria had some power failures over summer, yeah. uh, it was because you know we didn't have enough coal, even though the reason why we had those brownouts was that the coal plants failed. <laughs> um <laughs> And it was like, but they just ignore that because it's to their audience, to the people that they align to. Yes. Um, it sounds right. It sounds like, you know, clearly renewables must be more expensive. Otherwise, 
why would we not all be always be using them? And the truth That's is, exactly right. because of this political bullshit, uh, they are cheaper uh, and they are also more reliable. Mm. And that's exactly why they have to push the reliability issue, because the price is coming down, and and it's, so it's not a price issue anymore. It's not a cost issue. But they still lie about it. Like if you do a focus group and you ask people, uh, do you think that you know renewables are more expensive than coal? People have bought the line. Oh, yeah. that that is true. But it's not true. No, it's it's profoundly untrue. Uh, like you know, because I suppose when they were first coming in, you know, you had to. If you wanted to have your um, you tick the thing in your electricity, like oh, I'd like to take the renewable option, it costs you a bit more. Yeah, you have a green power option. Yeah, yep. and it costs a bit more, but that's no longer mm. the case. They are now; it's no. now it, it is now not more expensive. And McCormack, McCorm- Michael McCormack, uh, the the temporary leader of the Nationals, was coming out with some more of the demonising about what would happen if we had more renewable energy. That's this week. And then you have, uh, you know, Bill Shorten saying that uh, there needs to be a 45% emissions reduction target. I mean, the bloke's living in fairyland. I mean, you can't do that. You can't do that at the moment. I mean, it's just not possible. He's nuts. He, he, he can't provide the sort of baseload energy needs. I mean, sure, go down that path, but forget night footy, forget night cricket. I mean, quite frankly, and, and you'll have pensioners uh, turning, uh, you know, turning off their power because they won't be able to afford it and they'll be shivering all winter. And they'll be and they'll be melting all summer. That's the future under Bill Shorten. And if the Greens get their way, well, I mean, we might as well just pack up and leave the country. Now <laughs> I'm going to play you something that reminds me of a second. Although I do want to first of all say, uh, has McCormick not noticed that pensioners can't afford to heat and cool their homes now? Yes. Like that's not a new, that's not a futuristic, you know, dystopian under Bill Shorten thing. That's now. Yes. We can't afford to cool our house in summer. Like no, pensioners are not able to afford it. Are you kidding? It's, it's crazy talk. It really is. But I also like his whole, oh, you know, pensioners. You know, we, we, care, we care about the pensioners. You know, poor old pensioners are going to be the victims of the, you know, the, the, oh, the terrifying yeah. Labor government. It just reminded me a lot of the old sketches that Tony Martin used to do on Get This, uh, where Peter Costello was warning us about the um, terrors uh, that would befall us if Kevin Rudd ever became Prime Minister. Uh, this sort of thing. Mr Costello, what do you honestly think was yeah. discussed? As far as I know, it was uh, about taking kiddies and pensioners, defenceless uh, elderly people, uh, who I have a lot of time for, and uh, crushing them into a fine powder in one of his uh, death mills, as as I understand Kevin calls them. I don't think uh, anyone wants to see loved ones crushed into a fine powder and then distributed uh, through the prison system to murderers and... uh, Criminals of that sort. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, no he's evidence. the one who's uh, gone to the lunch. I mean, maybe you should ask him. Maybe you should contact him via his uh, his killing fields. But I just say uh, to the voters: Do you want a convicted murderer running the country? If so, vote for Kevin Rudd. There's a whole series of like thick old. Anyway, uh, so yes, Ke- Kevin Rudd did end up uh, becoming prime minister, and of course, murdering us all with his scimitar of death. Uh, <laughs> But just remind me, like this, I love it when they're That's like, oh, you know, pensioners, we've got a lot of time for. We've got to look after the pensioners that we are terrifying and, you know, massively screwing. But, uh, yeah, so McCormick, McCormick thinks that uh, pensioners are doing fine now. And uh, or, or, well, he probably thinks that the pensioners are the ones who, who might be losing their franking credits on their, you know, yes. million, one and a half million dollar uh, you know, asset pools that they don't have to touch. Sorry, share portfolios that they don't have to touch plus whatever they own in real estate. Those people, the, you know, the poor hard done by ones. Oh. Well, you know, t- technically he might be right because uh, part of the way that the Libs have set up the um, 
tax system. That's what it is. Uh, you possibly could like negatively give, mm. if you owned a huge property portfolio and a huge number of shares, um, such that you were getting a payout from the taxpayer for your shares. You may have been able to uh, set things up, move things into trusts, uh, arrange your taxable income using accountants in such a way that you've got a taxable income that's so low that you actually do get the age pension. Like it is possible that some of these really rich people are also technically pensioners in the sense that they receive a pension. There, there is pensioners. They're the ones he's, he's going on about. They're not pensioners in the sense of their only income is the pension and they rely on the pension and they need the pension to survive, mm-hmm. but they are technically pensioners in the sense that yes. they get a pension. Yes. They just shouldn't. <laughs> That's just semantics. Well, interestingly, you know what? I'm not even going to bother. I, I could go back and play there. Both both Scott Morrison and Angus Taylor, both of those interviews that we played, the excerpts from where they were bullshitting about what the emissions were, yeah. in both of them they start doing they're, – they're trying to say that they're going to reach Paris – uh, and they've definitely got the numbers that can now do Paris. And the way they're going to do it is to use uh, credits that, that Australia's got from uh, hitting Kyoto. Mm. So basically, they're doing an accounting trick to avoid actually reducing emissions. They're just like, look, we already did it, so it's all fine. Um, it's chunky as hell. Labor hasn't promised that they won't do the same thing. Um, but it's this thing where the Libs come out and be like, look, don't worry about Look, we're on top of the climate. We're going to hit our Paris targets. Yeah. And he's like... Only by doing some accounting shit. We're not worried about Paris as this sort of, uh, you know, accounting exercise. We're worried about the climate in the sense that we can all look out the window and see the climate is changing. Yes. And that we we believe, you know what? We believe the scientists more than we believe the politicians. We believe the scientists who say that there is only 12, now 11 years in order to actually address this on a global level before it's... You know, not just locked in that we're going up by one or two degrees, but locked in that, you know, we are screwed as a species on this planet. Yes. Earth will be fine. Earth will be great. You know, we don't, don't worry about the Earth. The planet will be fine. Mm. It's just all the species that rely on, you know, the, the the atmosphere that we currently exist in that we've evolved to live with. Uh, you know, we're all screwed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, bees are overrated. With the uh, Kyoto Protocol, though, at the time when it was set, it was widely known that Australia's target was very easy and very high. And so that we met, met it, not not a great surprise, to be honest. And um, But what they're essentially saying is, so we met our target and, you know, we had a bit of, um, on the books, we've got a bit left over. So that means we can put a bit more carbon back into the atmosphere and it's all going to be tickety-boo. No, no, it's not going to be tickety-boo. No, no, that carbon doesn't count. It doesn't actually damage the climate because it's 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 a credit. Yes. The atmosphere looks at us and goes, "Oh, okay, that that bit doesn't that doesn't that doesn't count." No. Yeah, we, I, get, I, get, I won't I won't I will deploy some kind of magical atmospheric uh, physics whereby I yes. can ignore that carbon. Yes. Those carbon compounds, it'll be fine. It tick, get yeah, no worries. All good. It's magic. Mm. I read a lot on the podcast about the EDC of the line that Australia's emissions don't really count because we're such a small country because yeah. obviously every bit you know counts, but yes, we're a small percentage of the world's emissions, but massively overdoing our effort um, per capita, which means yes. that we can't advocate for the bigger countries to rein in their emissions because they can turn around to us and say, hey, we'd love to be polluting as much per capita as you, you um, yeah. down there. Why should we pollute less per capita? Why should each of our citizens pollute less than your citizens? Why should your citizens be able to put much more? Why should we sacrifice our industry for you? Mm. And why should we sacrifice developing our countries to get to your standard just because, you know, you're a small per capita amount. Yeah. Now, that said, we do need to be able to persuade them to do that. We need to be able to persuade them to adopt other 
technologies that don't scrub the climate because we are all part of the same planet and therefore what they emit harms us in the same way as what we emit harms them. And so we need to be able to persuade them to stop doing that. But we can't do it if we're not doing our our own part because quite (laughs) rightly they'll turn around and say, get stuffed. And of course the other thing Australia does is we do even worse than that. We We are worse than ineffectual in pushing towards the action that the planet needs. Sorry, I'd say the planet again. The planet doesn't care. The 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 uh, action that human civilization needs. But we do worse than that because, of course, we go out there and we deliberately sabotage all of these uh, climate agreements on behalf of the coal lobby. Oh. Like we go out there and our diplomats work behind the scenes to sabotage these agreements. Mm. Like there's plenty of evidence that we do that. So we are we are deliberate wreckers of action. Yes. So it's like several steps back that we need to be going to before we're you know even doing our part, let alone you know, actually persuading other countries to do what's needed as well. Mm. Like, we're, we're so far from being part of the solution, we're literally still part of the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, back back on uh, on, on sal- wages and incomes and so forth, uh, did you hear the audio this week of Matthias Cormann actually celebrating uh, the fact that the Libs have kept wages low? Oh, let's hear this again. This is a very okay. important point, if I may. Uh, this is an incredibly important point. The, the whole reason why it is important to ex- have flexibility in the uh, labour market, the whole point uh, mm. it, it is important to ensure that wages can adjust in the context of economic conditions is to avoid massive spikes in unemployment, which are incredibly uh, disruptive. That is, a, that is a deliberate design feature uh, of uh, our economic uh, architecture. Yeah. He's literally saying that the ability to keep wages low uh, is a deliberate feature of the system as he sees it. That's our yes. finance minister. Yep. Great. Um, That's great. Well, it's it's not surprising. Like, I, I think Labor has picked this week uh, that they are going to campaign heavily on wages and wages growth. Mm. Mm. And of all of the issues that are currently floating around in the national consciousness, that is a really, really good one, I reckon, for Labor to pick because it is entirely consistent with what we know about. We know that Labor sells us out to big business all the time. We know that Labor you know, is off torturing refugees on remote hellholes. We know that Labor is really bad at spending on public services, better than the Libs, but not particularly good. Like, There's lots of things that we, don't, that we know where Labor lets us all down. But yeah. the one thing we do know about Labor is that it is a union-based party and that advocating for higher wages is definitely part of its DNA. Sure, it, it has, it's often been weak on it, but at least that's one thing that they do believe in and they will push for in the same way as it's one thing that the Liberals can't counter because they quite clearly believe in what Cormann's just saying, which is keeping wages low because they are the employer lobby. They are. They trickle down. Yeah. Mm. And this is the issue that... It will resonate with people because everybody knows that wages are notoriously low. We can see the price of everything going up and wages staying stagnant. Absolutely. Voters are annoyed about it. It's got a hip pocket element as well as an equitable element. Mm. It's something that the Liberals can't neutralise. They can't turn around and say, no, no, your wages are doing fine, which they try, but everybody's like, I'm pretty sure mine aren't. Yeah, it's lived experience. They can't counter that. Yeah, it is the perfect issue for them to campaign on. If you, if yeah. he succeeds, you know, obviously the Libs were like, well, we'll make it about boats. And that hasn't worked for them. But wages really are going to work because mm. where boats are sort of an existential, a random... Like, they're not a thing that directly affects Australians' general day-to-day lives. No, it's not something that they see and feel every day in their own house. No. And, and the Libs try to bring it in and they try to be like, hey, uh, refugees are the to blame for congestion and, you know, other things that you do experience in your daily life. But the Libs can't really argue that because they're also trying to claim that they've stopped the boats. So how do they argue that hmm. any of the inconveniences that you're facing have anything to do with the refugees? They try to say... 
they, they are trying to run the line, and we'll play some audio for this. They're trying to run the line that, it, that um, it's all the money we're spending on the refugees. But everybody knows that the Libs aren't giving that money to the refugees to be kind to no. them. Like, it's purely being spent on treating them badly. And again, the Libs are saying they stopped the boat. So why is it costing billions upon billions? Yeah. And they're saying there's only a thousand people left. So why is it costing billions, guys? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. And I think they recognise that this is a weak argument for them. Here is Linda Reynolds. I don't. I don't know if you um, remember hearing a couple of weeks back, Linda Reynolds, uh, who's a senator for Western Australia, standing up in the parliament and giving this nauseating speech where she was claiming that the passing of the Medivac bill was going to cause people to die, and and she wept for the poor personnel who were going to have to drag them out of the sea. It won't be the senators in this place who have to recover the bloated corpse of babies and women's mauled by the sharks. This nauseating thing where she's like, yeah. you know, any kind of compassion for refugees is responsible for them dying. And I, I, I you people have got no, no, uh, no compassion for the, for the lives that will be lost. All this bullshit. It was yeah. nauseating. It was one of the most infuriating things I've ever heard. Anyway, played mm. it on the podcast because obviously we hate this. <laughs> but here she is on Sky. Um, and this is one of the most spectacular flip-flops I think uh, you will ever hear in Australian politics. Check this out. Do you agree with the sentiment that, um, that that flexibility in wages and and keeping wages at a relatively modest level is a deliberate feature of our economic architecture to actually drive jobs growth? Yeah. No, I don't believe. No, absolutely not. And you know, for Bill Shorten to even suggest that, I think, is uh, shows a well, fundamental. I'm actually quoting. I'm quoting Matthias um, Cormann, the finance minister yes. here, uh, Minister, your colleague. He says that wages flexibility is quite a deliberate feature of our economic architecture. Uh, but that, that he's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like. I'm at, a, I'm at a swimming pool at an Olympic event and there's a diving board and she's just jumped off and done some flips and then all the judges have just hold, held up a card with number 10 on it. She just reversed so fast. It's like... I'm, it's just... I'm surprised a giant screech dandy. sound effect of it, like the tyres skinning on the ground. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, bit of smoke off, those, off that rubber. I'm not surprised that she didn't believe that Cormann would have said such a dumb thing because it's one of those things that the libs are supposed to keep quietly to themselves. You don't shout yeah. to the peasants that you're keeping their wages low deliberately when no. they're about to get to vote. No. You say that privately to the people who are keeping their wages low, but you don't say it in front of the peasants. Yes, no, don't tell the peasants. A weird choice for them to make. Um, it's, it's very odd. Or maybe they're just doing it now. Um, because they know it's it's not a good look and we'll forget about it by the time the election rolls around. I don't think they're doing it deliberately at all. I think they forget who they're mm. talking to and they just didn't think through. And then they've given this you oh, know, spectacular piece of audio that will be hanging around their necks. Uh, and But I don't, know, I don't know why she hadn't been briefed on it. I don't know why... I mean, they, presumably they live in their bubble enough that they didn't. Don't think you are. They're they're in the bubble that doesn't know about. Oh, sorry, oh, my my daughter's currently out of the house, so it's fine. I can say the word bubble a couple of times. <laughs> um, you know, we can. Bring, We're in a bubble you know, safe zone. <laughs> iTunes has a rating, a, a language rating, whether you're swearing or not. But there should also be a. Are you going to say words that are going to provoke toddlers? Um, <laughs> that, that should be one of the things that are podcast. Are you going to say? It's like you know, it should have an Alexa rating. Is uh, people? Are you saying a word that's accidentally going to activate? You know. Yes. Okay, Google. Um, <laughs> Okay, Google, play whichever is the most embarrassing song on our listeners' phones. You shouldn't say that in a podcast. It's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, while the campaign's on, we've got a couple of other wacky things. Talking of former party leaders, we've got uh, Tony Abbott posting uh, this audio. Like, he posted this as a tweet uh, of his opponent making sense in relation to a tunnel in his electorate. 
I am in fact in favour of the tunnel, but what we do want to hear, as Mr Albanese pointed out, is a business case because Infrastructure Australia still lists the project as a 10 to 15 year long term <coughs> Abbott tweeted that. Like, that's her, his opponent saying, look, I'm in favour of the project as long as it passes a business case. And he's like, see, she's being opposed to the project. Like, what? What? What is wrong with you? Actually, the, the what's it called? Advanced Australia. The, the, um, the opposite, of, the conservative attempt, what, like their fifth or sixth conservative attempt to do get up, um, is busy out there telling uh, voters in Moringa that Zali Segal is in favour of Labor's franking credits policy. Right. Which, I mean, she should be because it's a perfectly good policy, but um, I don't think she is. Uh, and she's really annoyed about it now. She wants to bring in some, uh, if she does win, she wants there to be some um, better rules on lying in political advertising. Because currently, as long as you do your, your um, disclaimer saying, so you're identifying who's saying it, there's not really any, uh, there's not really any limit on what lies you can tell. Uh, the only, mm. only cost is if you get called out on them and the public actually pays attention. Yeah. And then we also, from leaders and former leaders of parties, we had Mark Latham, whose feelings are very hurt. Uh, I'll play it to you because I think you'll, I think your heartstrings will be pulled. You know, um, uh, I, I got involved in politics, so I thought democracy was a fine thing because you could say what you wanted, articulate your opinion and have a debate about policy issues. Today, you want to debate those issues, they just try and howl you down with racist, xenophobe, uh, misogynist, homophobe, Islamophobe, they've got so all these phobes. As Scott Ludlam said in response to that, Mark, have you considered trying not to do those things? Yeah. What is it that you're saying where you're getting called an Islamophobe? It's almost like perhaps you're saying something Islamophobic or homophobic or misogynist. When you, it, it feels like those words come out in relation to specific things that you've said that are those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I feel like he's saying, um, you know, back when I was a boy, I could be a racist and nobody cared. Yeah, no, I didn't, never got called out by these groups that I was uh, demeaning uh, back in the old days. No. Why, why should it be happening now? No. Surely I should just, you know, keep demeaning them and it'll be fine. Yeah. How dare they say words that are accurate that just, that hurt my feelings? <laughs> Look, I can't, I can't get enough of Mark and it's good to hear him back. I do love how quickly the people who are willing to say any shit about anybody else and, and say that it's fine under free speech... Um, are the same people who immediately chuck a complete wobbly if they if somebody calls them an accurate name in response. So he's angry about those terms. Yeah. Kerry-Anne Kenley saying something really demeaning and racist was outraged at the idea that somebody might uh, assert that the things she was saying were racist. Yeah. The, that dickhead Rowan Dean on Sky uh, is so angry with uh, Sleeping Giants for... Yes. In fact, people who retweet Sleeping Giants who point out uh, the nasty, dangerous stuff that he says, like the harm, like the demeaning, mm. bullying stuff that he says, and then encourage advertisers to boycott him, he's threatening to sue them. And that includes everybody who's retweeted them. <laughs> like, these are the people who are like, free speech, free speech. Oh, you hurt my feelings. I'm coming for you. Yes. <laughs> it's so true, though. It's so true. So white, so fragile. And meanwhile, uh, on policy stuff in the campaign, well, Lee got a, a devastating uh, moment from Michael McCormack again. Michael McCormack's in this episode a bit, but uh, yeah, no, th this is the supposed champion of the farmers being unable to give an example of anything that he's ever done putting farmers ahead of miners. Could you name a single big policy area where the Nats have sided with the interests of farmers over the interests of miners when they've come into conflict? The National Water Infrastructure Development Fund, which has put another half a billion dollars on the table to build more dams. And how does that affect the mining industry? Well, um, well, I'm, I'm saying it's helping farmers. More no, than no, the mining no, no. Industry. I'm not saying you don't do anything to help farmers ever. I'm, I'm saying, can you point me to a big policy area where that balance has been struck in favour of farmers rather than miners? 
Um, well, not, not straight off the top of my head, but I mean, you know, you, you look at, uh, well, native vegetation laws. I mean, they're very much in favour of us protecting farmers' rights. We've always protected farmers' rights and interests. We will continue to do that. Uh, but, but there has to be a balance. I'm not going to, you know, cherry-pick one policy over another. So there has to be a balance. That's great. But the balance seems to be just for a balance for mining. Yeah, unless he's saying that the miners and the farmers never come into conflict, which would be absurd, he's pretty much conceding that 100% of the time he picks the miners over the farmers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Which you would hope would affect how farmers vote because there's a lot more of them than there are miners. Yeah, yeah, you you would hope, you would hope. It's kind of, because I, I come from a, a Nats, um heavy uh, sort of large-scale farming uh, area and um, I don't know, I'm seeing a change. I, it's, it's slow and it's generational, but I am seeing a change. So the Nats are just relying on the people whose families have always voted Nats for generations, but uh, the next generation is like, yeah. yeah, enough of that. It's a bit like footy teams. You always barrack for your dad's footy team. And and that's a really hard thing to change in the country. Mm. Um, but, yeah. Well, because there's lots of, like, the biggest thing that you experience in the in the country on a political level is often, you know, there is the contrast between the way that you're treated and the city is treated. So you have a very oh, strong yes. sense of rural identity. Um, yes. And then you, so you naturally gravitate to a party that claims to have a rural identity. So, yeah, no, it'd be hard to crowbar people off that, you know, like limpets off that, that party. But mm. when the party is pretty much revealing that for all its rhetoric, it is genuinely a party of the big multinationals that are screwing the farmers in, in um, yeah. relation to you know, milk or any of these other things, uh, and of the miners, whenever the miners want to take land from farmers. And, and also when something comes in that's an even bigger obvious political issue than the country versus the city thing, mm. being the farmers are well aware that the climate is changing and not in a way that helps them grow crops. No, no, they're... they're- they're standing on the on the bare dirt every day, and they're looking at their dams going down, and they're looking at the fires coming through, and um, and they're living that, and they they keep records, even if it is you know a, a pen scratch on the back of the Weekly Times, um, they still keep long records, and they can they can see for yeah. themselves, um, so th- they are starting to get a bit more vocal about that. But whether they will like it's the they've managed so well to. <sighs> get people voting against their interest um, on, like, social issues and things instead and to ignore their economic mm. issue interests, anyway, what it'll take. I suppose the other thing is that a lot of those um, rural areas are slowly urbanising as well. They would have urbanised more if the Libs haven't, hadn't wrecked the NBN with the national support. Yes. I think um, the other thing that the Nats have in their favour is they have the, the rhetoric of saying we are, the, you know, we are for the farmers, we are for the country. And the other, the other um, parties don't really come out that strongly on that no but then again if that audio is played in rural communities where he's clearly indicating that he can't think of any examples where he's ever put farmers ahead of miners um you would think that would have to cause some people to be thinking again and you know what even if they don't like the greens on their um you know social stuff Mm. the fact that the greens are genuinely committed to doing something about the climate change you know no it's they're not going to switch that's too far it's too much no no, I, I actually, I, I actually disagree with you there because I've seen it. I've seen um, quite a few broad-scale farmers jump straight from Nats to Greens. So, because they hate the, the Libs and they hate Labor, and they're like, "All right, fine." And it's mostly about climate change. 
That's something to look forward mm. to. <laughs> Here's yeah. how it happens. Um, well, and also because the big social things have kind of gone now. So they used to be able to be like, well, you know, at least the Nats hate gay people as much as we do in the country. Yes. Um, and that's sort of, you know, the issue's done now. Yeah. Marriage equality's happened. There's, you know, there's not really a debate to be had on it anymore. It's not really a reason for them to keep voting for the Nats. They've kind of killed that issue. They really have, yeah. And, and you know, the Conservatives can scream. John Anderson can scream what he likes about trans people and, and that the, they're coming for your kids or whatever nonsense they spout. Yeah. But I just, people don't see it and don't, and no, they, I think people know that it's bullshit. Yeah, no. And I think that's becoming a bit more of a lived experience too. Um, you know, as society changes and, and more people are, are coming out and, and living their true life, they, um, they actually get to see it now rather than just hear the rhetoric. I, I do think you're right. We better, before we leave, there's a little bit of stuff in Australia versus Humanity and we better better deal with it. We can start with uh, Scamo on Christmas Island, which was, what was it, $2,000 a minute we paid for him to go there, still arguing that refugees were going to take beds and houses from uh, Australian citizens. Mm. The Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton said that those refugees that are flown to Australia for medical assessment would see Australians thrown off medical waiting lists, they could lose their homes. That's just not true, is it? Well, if someone's coming for medical treatment in a public hospital and they're getting a treatment in that hospital, well, there's a finite amount of support. I mean, if they're in an operating theatre, that's an operating theatre someone else could be in. I think that's a fairly simple fact. But what about housing? Who would lose their homes because an ill asylum seeker was flown to, say, Brisbane for assessment? Well, what happens is what the, the process leads to is people will come to Australia and then they'll get their fish hooks into the legal system long after any medical treatment is being done and they'll remain often in community tension which requires us to actually go and provide housing. So it calls on services, it draws on services, there's no doubt about that. That's why when Labor lost control of the borders then we had you know, still 30,000 people, even at the end of their time in government, who just remained unprocessed and undealt with in Australia. They were pulling down on health resources, other resources, welfare support and a range of other payments that if they'd never been allowed to come to Australia never would have had to have been paid. So Peter's point is pretty simple. When you lose control of your borders, you lose control of the costs of so many other things and there's about $16 billion worth of cost blowouts under Labor to prove that. So the most infuriating part at the end of that is the idea that the vast amount of money that they're spending to persecute refugees is a necessary and unavoidable thing and it's because we because we've let some refugees uh, arrive and now we have to just now we have to spend 16 billion dollars uh breaking them to try and send a message to other refugees yeah, yeah. the vast expense is because we're treating them so badly because uh doing everything offshore making sure that when you when you do have refugees when the, the 800 900 refugees who've already come here to seek and had medical treatment and it was just a matter of they had to go through the courts to get it over like a year or two so a painfully slow process when you're sick mm. and then they still came to australia and it didn't destroy our borders but the fact that when they go to the doctor the Government insists on them being taken in handcuffs and having security people. And they put the, the, the reason why the hotels or the, the accommodation is that they're putting them in is expensive is because they're locking them in there. So they have to have kitchen facilities and things. They're not allowed to go and get food. Mm. Like we treat them as prisoners, which is expensive. Prisons are expensive, but not because you're kind to the prisoners, because security stuff is expensive. Yeah. Like we could not do that. We could process people efficiently at the airport uh, and then release them into the community. Like it's fairly straightforward like we don't need to be spending billions of dollars treating them badly no 
No, we really don't. But then we'd have the downside of not being able to say, oh, we're spending billions, it costs us billions of dollars to keep our borders safe. I, I do love the idea that the people who are doing this then blame us for the bad decisions that they're making. <laughs> and this line that if somebody arrives here, then you have to find accommodation for them and you have to find a bed for them and that must be taken from somewhere else. You might as well argue, you know, every time a child is born, I'm sorry, we have to stop children being born here because each one of them is going to take a bed. A bed in a hospital. Yeah, think about the pensioners. That, those children are coming in here taking beds. Like, <laughs> no, you expand the facilities to meet the needs of the population. Like, yeah. You don't go, oh, this person doesn't deserve you know, treatment in a hospital. We refuse to provide that, that um, hospital bed. And if you're talking about the finite resources, well, we'd have a lot more resources if we stopped spending billions of dollars torturing them. Can you imagine what we could do in terms of uh, housing and medical support with, with those millions? That's crazy, Tom. Yes, Crazy talk. Exactly. And God forbid they, they get their hooks into the legal system. Their fish hooks, he said. Fish hooks. Ugh, sounds very hooks. very sinister. And I've got some audio here of Peter Dutton talking to Ben Fordham on 2GB uh, where they're having a go at Julian Burnside, who is now running for Josh Frydenberg's uh, seat of Kuyong. Um, Julian Burnside being a barrister who um, has gone from sort of being a corporate barrister through to somebody who's been advocating for refugees for many years now. Mm. And it's kind of hard to describe. Like, I'm just going to play you Fordham and, and Dutton's nonsense about this, but just keep your an ear out for where uh, Dutton likes to blame uh, the people who want him to stop squandering money torturing refugees for the amount of money that he squanders torturing refugees. But first of all, we've got Ben Fordham bashing Julian Burnside in some really silly ways. The human rights lawyer Julian Burnside has announced he's running for parliament. And this is serious. I've got to admit, when I first heard this, I thought, oh, this will be one of these people who say that they're going to run for parliament. And then they get all the publicity. And then at the last minute, they say, oh, no, I've changed my mind. But it seems to be all official because he's out there today saying that he's going to take on the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, as a candidate for the Greens. No surprises there. Julian Burnside is the bloke who tweeted a fake photo of Peter Dutton wearing a Nazi uniform. He's the man who defended Shake Shady. Sorry, I just love they've got this list of random things they've tried to find to don't smear him. Um, whether whether any of them are, are true, like, it's like if you've retweeted something or whether there was some context on it, uh, you just take that out and just say like they've retweeted this bad thing or something. And it, it's, yeah. This is just nonsense smeared, but like. There is a structure to how you do this, and he's doing it. Like, mm. this man is crazy. Here is a list of things that, that you will hate about him. Yes. Uh, that, that before I introduce anything he's doing now, um, then in a moment, uh, Burnside will make, uh, uh, of course, an important point, which is um, you have no idea how many people are dying after you drag them back out to sea. Mm. And then they will just ignore that and go, no, many people died under Labor's policy, which, of course, the Greens didn't support the offshore detention policies of Labor either because it's still part of the whole thing of not letting refugees come safely. Like, it's still the thing where we're um, in forcing people from certain countries to come by boat where if they were from other countries, they'd just be able to fly here to an airport mm. and seek asylum here, which, um, and we had the figures this week that Peter Dutton, uh, under Dutton, the number of people seeking asylum flying here by air is, is way up. And... Of course it is, because that's how most people do actually do it. It's only, the only people getting on boats are the people who are coming from countries where we won't let them have visas to come by air in the first place. Like, yeah. it's a really simple problem to solve. Stop preventing them from having those visas. Give them the same visas as everybody else. Yes. And nobody will be drowning at sea. But no, they pretend it's like either we torture the refugees 
all people drown at sea. So, sorry, there's no alternative. But anyway, he's, he's doing his bashing of Syrup. I interrupted you. I interrupted you, Ben. Sorry, you've got some idiotic smears about Burnside to get out there for your listeners first. He's also the bloke who's trying to scare the living daylights out of us over climate change, saying the human race may only have 12 years left. Set the stopwatch on that one. And he once said the entire island of Tasmania could be turned into a giant offshore detention centre. It sounds like a bit of a comedy show, but this is for real. It's probably a good thing that he's trying to win a seat in Victoria as opposed to Tasmania, because I don't know what Tasmanians would think about his idea of turning the entire island into an offshore detention centre. That sounds like bullshit. Yeah, it's quite bizarre. We did have um, detention centres here until relatively recently. Now I've just Googled it. Uh, what they're talking about is a proposal he made six years ago, in 2013. Uh, he suggested, okay, fine, if you're obsessed with asylum seekers being kept in detention, then fine, define Tasmania as uh, as being a detention centre, um, and then they can be dealt with in the community, which, of course, is, is the sensible way of dealing with yeah. it. He's not in any way suggesting that, you know, we need to do that uh, generally, you could just have them in the community without redefining the entire state <laughs> as a detention centre. But he's just saying, look, look, you could, if you if you must do that, well, there's another way of doing it. He's not suggesting that that's actually the preferred way of doing it. It's certainly not the Greens' policy. And he's this is 2019. That was 2013. That is. Did you get that from what Ben Fordham described? Because no. I, I feel like what Ben Fordham described was misleading his listeners. I don't think that that was an accurate or reasonable description of what uh, Burnside is actually advocating for at all. Not even remotely close. But anyway, he was on TV today saying a number of things which I think deserve closer scrutiny. It involves border security and in particular boat turnbacks. Julian Burnside has said today, we don't know how many people have died as a result of the boat turnback policy. We don't know how many people have died as a result of boat turnbacks. Well, Julian, I'll tell you one thing. We know how many people died before the boat turnbacks, about 1,200. 1,200 people dead, including hundreds of women and children. And Julian Burnside even went as far as saying that Australia... Okay, that was his close scrutiny. His closest scrutiny was just claiming that people had died beforehand. Mm. How is that close to scrutiny of the claim that people are... We don't know how many people are dying now. No. Ben Fordham, if you were a journalist, surely the relevant issue there is, say you're right and it was 1,200 people who drowned and, and that that was because of Labor policy. And because and, and say that was 1,200 people drowning, like there was no other way of stopping that happening other than offshore hell camps and turnbacks, yes. which is bullshit. But say for the sake of argument that that's the alternative we face. Right. Isn't then the relevant question, um, based on the, Julian's question of, how many people are drowning now? Shouldn't you as a journalist be wondering, are more people than 1,200 drowning now? Mm. Like, if you're like, oh, no, well, definitely 1,200 drowned before. Yeah, what about the second part of that of how many are drowning now? You've just gone, I'm going to look into this with greater scrutiny, closer scrutiny. Yes. And I ignore entirely the question. <laughs> you're about, in a moment, Ben Fordham is going to have Peter Dutton on. He's a, Ben Fordham thinks he's a journalist. He's going to have Peter Dutton, the minister, on his show. He's re- just had put to him... The question of how many people are dying now that we're doing boat turnbacks. Would that not be a question you might, if you're an actual journalist, ask the minister? It would seem. When the minister bullshits, wouldn't yeah. you push him on it? Like, no, but how do you know that when the minister says, oh, nobody has? Wouldn't you be like, how do you know that? What records are you keeping? Like, how is that not an important issue? If you're, yes. you're saying you're worried about people drowning at sea, yeah. 
shouldn't you care how many people are drowning that we're dragging? Mm. You're saying that we need to do this to stop people smugglers running leaky boats, but we're turning them back to sea. So how? And if you really did were concerned about people drowning at sea, if nobody was drowning at sea, what a bloody headline to have. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, If that were true, what kind of a... Don't you love that though? Like they've just... He just pulled a switcheroo on his audience so Mm. blatant and breathtakingly Mm. shameless. Like, they've just had put to them the question of how many people are dying, and he's just gone, doesn't matter, lots of people died before. (laughs) But it does matter how many people are dying now. Like, even if your first claim was true, like, if your claim is, like, you've got 1,200 people dying, therefore this is better, only works if people aren't dying now. Or at least if fewer people are dying now, you don't even bother finding out. You're not making any specific claims about it because you don't know mm. and you don't even care to ask. Sorry, back to uh, <laughs> not enraged voice. Go on, Mr. Fordham. You, uh, that was your closest scrutiny of, of Julian Burnside's question about people dying from bone turn Okay, what was the other thing you were taking him for? And Julian Burnside even went as far as saying that Australia and the Australian government is involved in people smuggling because we send people back to where they came from. I'm telling you, this bloke is all kinds of cuckoo. Joining me on the line, the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton. Mr Dutton, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, that was his closer analysis of Burnside pointing out that by dragging people around the place, the Australian government was, in fact, people smuggling. Yes. But it is. That's what yes. that means. Yes. Like, yeah, look, he's cuckoo for calling out this. Yeah, thing. no, it is literally what that word means. You're you're moving people from point A to point B. There's no part of the definition of people smugglers that says what he pictures, which is diabolical Indonesian criminals probably stroking beards and possibly wearing some kind of Muslim clothing and cackling evilly. He's got an idea in his head <laughs> what an evil people smuggler looks like. Yes. And clearly the Australian government doesn't yeah. look like that. They're white men in suits. Like, no. How, it's a cuckoo. <laughs> how can you say them? It's like saying that, that a white man who blows up an abortion clinic is a terrorist. He doesn't even look like a Muslim. Sorry, let me be really clear. I'm not endorsing that viewport, but I think that's what Ben Fordham's mindset would be. It's like, how can you say white people are this thing that I in my head only say are this particular ethnic group, even though terrorism clearly has a meaning to do with terror, not race. Indeed. So here he is. He's going to, after that introduction, I feel that we can be confident that he will hold Peter Dutton's feet to the fire. Mr. Dutton, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ben. Julian Burnside running for Parliament. What do you make of this? Well, all you can do is hope and pray that uh, he never enters a Parliament because his views are wacky, as you say. But the trouble is that he's speaking what a lot of far left Labor members and members of the Greens actually believe but don't have the guts to say. So if you want an insight into why Bill Shorten's having troubles, containing the left of the Labor Party, it's largely because they agree with his views around border protection and bringing people who have a background fighting for ISIS, etc., back into our country. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> That's a Sorry. jump. <laughs> Sorry. Why don't you treat refugees compassionately because they have... Wait. They're, what? they're all what? from ISIS, Jeremy. This is the crucial bit of information that we've been missing. If even one of them is a member of ISIS, then you'd be able to reject them on character grounds. You'd, like, it'd be really easy for Peter Dutton to immediately <laughs> deport someone who was a member of ISIS. He definitely has the power to do that. Yes. None of the people we're talking about are members of ISIS because he would have deported them. Yeah. He can. He has that power. Like, it's really easy. Like, it's not even a, a fair process. Like, it'd be really easy for him to deport anyone in that situation. So, whoa! We're just going with the whole 
look, they're all brown people and they're probably members of ISIS. Yes. Holy shit! Like, he just squeezed that in there and Ben Fordham's like, mm, mm. yep, no, no that, that's plausible. Yeah. It's, been, it's Julian Burnside who's the crazy one. <laughs> they're not even attempting to hide their racism now. No. They're extreme views on the one hand, but they're held not just by him, but by other people, including some of those on the left within the Labor Party. By the way, the extreme views we're talking about are that we should abide by the refugee convention we signed as a country. (laughs) Extreme. I mean, that's just madness. I mean, what kind of idiot could think that we should follow a convention that we signed? We know what people smugglers do. They take advantage of people who are vulnerable. They... They bully people, they lie to people, they, they often force people to hand over their identification documents. And, and really, I mean, they send them off on these rickety boats with, with no hope in hell of reaching the destination. And that's why we've had 1,200 people or more who haven't made the journey successfully to Australia. They've drowned and they've died. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hey, Ben, if they're rickety boats that have no hope of reaching the destination, then how on earth do boat turnbacks work? Yeah. How are they expected to get back to the point from where we are returning them to? Because they say that they only turn back boats where it's safe to do so. They're also saying that no boats have got through. Hmm. So where are the boats going? Like, you're either turning them back, in which case, hey, they're all safe. Yeah. Or what are you doing with them? Yeah. What's happening to the boats? Because if you're saying that boats have stopped arriving, that's a lie. We know from Senate estimates that they're still coming. So... Given that you're not taking, letting any of them come through, you're saying you're not adding any people to the detention centres and you're not letting them come to Australia, you must be saying that 100% of them are dragged back to sea, which means that either you're dragging boats yes. back to sea that are not seaworthy or they're all seaworthy. It, it, yeah. Explain that, Ben, you muppet. Or at least ask Peter Dutton to explain it <laughs> if it occurred to you, but you're not a journalist. I mean, that's just... I love that, that, these lines and, and people smugglers, like... They're all diabolical criminals who take advantage of, of uh, vulnerable people. You're yeah. not criminal. You could criminalise running unsafe boats. You could criminalise taking somebody's passport. You could criminalise, you know, there's a lot of all of the negative behaviours that he's describing. You could easily criminalise without criminalising the act of bringing someone here. Yeah. Like, we have, basically, we have made sure that the only people who will send a boat are the people who will send a disposable crew to a disposable boat because when we intercept them, we'll destroy the boat. Yes. Although not anymore. Now, now we just push the boat back out to sea to hopefully not sink. Um, but, yeah, they, they, we've, we've specifically set it up so that the crime is getting people here safely, not endangering them. Yeah. Like, I 100% agree that putting somebody on an unsafe boat should be a crime hmm. and running an unsafe boat should be a crime and putting crew that don't know what they're doing should be a crime. Like, all those things should be a crime, but that's not what we're criminalising. No, not at all. Oh dear. Okay, so Dutton's got, Dutton's building up to his whole uh, all the billions of dollars that I squander. Oh God, he's building up to something. Well, the billions of dollars he has to squander. It's all because of the other people who are not him. <sighs> what do you make of the allegation today from Julian Burnside that your government is involved in people smuggling because we send back boats? Well, Ben, I think it's uh, sick and warped. To be honest, I think it's all about publicity seeking. And uh, look, I agree that it is sick and warped. Oh, he means he means what Burnside said. No, 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 no. What no. Burnside's describing is sick and warped. Yeah, no. What? It's sick and warped to call it. It's look. Sorry, Ben, but it, it is sick and warped for people to criticise me for the terrible things that I'm doing. Yes. Yes. That is sick and warped. The reality is that uh, we have stopped boats. We've stopped drownings at sea. Uh, wait a minute. You haven't stopped the boats. They've still been coming, and you're saying you stopped the drownings at sea. So you've just made a claim, a mm. bold claim. Mm. A very relevant claim. It's, it's entirely the question that Burnside was asking. Isn't this the point at which a journalist would be like, 
So, you know, even a friendly journalist would be like, okay, well, Peter, look, you're saying look, this is definitely something that we should be trumpeting. You've said that you've stopped the drownings at sea. So what's the government's evidence for that? Yes. Yes. Give us some facts. Give us something uh, documented. Give us the um, figures. Oh, we haven't checked any. We haven't recorded any yes at sea. Okay. Just just checking because um, Burnside's saying that, that they're drowning when they're going back. Uh, what What... Statistics is the government keeping, and, and what's the area that it's covering? Just so that you know, I can reassure my listeners that there's definitely no more drownings. You know, like a journalist would ask. <laughs> no, well, more specifically, a journalist that cared about people drowning. Yeah. And we've done it in a way that hasn't restarted boats. So uh, for somebody to try and rewrite the history or publicise their own candidacy uh, with these sort of crazy comments, I think speaks more about Mr Burnside than it does about what the government's been doing. The fact is the vast majority of Australians support strong border protection and Mr Shorten and Mr Burnside can try and unpick it or try and unwind what we've done through our efforts to stop boats and to stop drownings at sea, but I don't believe that that's what the Australian public supports. So we're going to stay strong. And you look at some of the other things that Mr Burnside's had to say. I mean, he's in favour of, of death duties. Oh, 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 sorry. This is the other smear. So the, whenever they introduce him on, on Sky or uh, whenever they talk about him on the conservative media, they're, they're like um, pulling out other random things that they've sort of dug through the Greens policy book to try and find things that will pe- will alienate people in the rather rich electorate that um, Burnside is running in. So they've gone with death duties, mm. so, which is which is a lovely term for inheritance taxes. Death <laughs> duty sounds so much scarier. Um <laughs> it sounds like the government's coming for you. Actually, it's like yes. you know, there's these terrible new texts that they're they're uh, demanding that certain people have to die. Yes, um, it's a little bit Monty Python esque. Yeah, they're going to come and take your internal organs, uh, but they'll sing you a nice song about the galaxy <laughs> whilst doing it. It's also it's like a shonky term for it because okay, if you, they're trying to say that it's a duty you pay when you die, but you don't pay it when you die because you don't pay anything when you die because you're dead. No. Uh, it's an inheritance tax. It's a tax that you would pay. Uh, if you're going to receive a chunk of money. The yeah. person who's paying it is the person who is receiving it. Uh, so it's an inheritance tax, not a death duty. And the Greens version is only, I think it's like an inheritance is above five or 10 million or something. It's something huge. So it doesn't affect ordinary people at all. But of course, they don't make that point. <laughs> it's just something that affects the very rich. And like, if the argument against tax is, well, look, at it's a disincentive for people to do things because, you know, you tax money in different ways as it moves around the economy. Okay, fine. Um, we tax labour and they're like, well, we shouldn't tax labour too much because otherwise people won't want to go and work. Hmm. What's the disincentive? How, is, how does that argument work in sense of inheritance taxes? What, somebody's going to be like, well, I was thinking of inheriting that money, but oh, if I have to pay tax on it, I guess I won't. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Like, it's, it's a form of money that's being transferred that you don't do anything to earn. You just get it. It's a gift, basically. Yeah, yes. You've, the, the person who's, certainly the person who died may have paid taxes to build that up. Although not necessarily, because, you know, the way <laughs> the tax system works, they may not have paid much in the way of taxes. But um, the person who's receiving it is getting a huge amount of income for nothing. Why should they be taxed less than people who work for their income? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, death duties. <laughs> Uh, and the union movement, uh, as we know, is in favour of death duties as well. So uh, we don't want to trash the economy. We want to keep the economy strong. Sorry, how would, how would an inheritance count? What? How would that trash the economy? I, What's the theory? Does, oh, he needs to draw me a diagram for this one. I'm trying to imagine it. So somebody's going to be like, well, um, if I have to pay tax on, on an inheritance above $5 million, then I suppose I don't want to earn money now? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Insane. I, 
Yeah. Oh, unless your theory is, maybe, maybe it's just simply that um, LNP economics is, is basically boils down to this. Uh, rich people should have whatever they want or the economy suffers. Yes. If the rich people miss out on something they want, if rich people have to pay something, then it costs the economy. That's it. That's it. Yep. Yeah. So, they're, they're, so all you have to do to test a policy, you don't need to do numbers and you don't need to you know, model it or anything. You just have to go, would it make a rich person sad if it affected them? Yeah. Yes. Then it's damaging the economy and we shouldn't do it. <laughs> there you are. It's a special that new form of economics. brilliant. I love it. And when you look at uh, the influence that Mr Burnside would have uh, on a shortened government, uh, I think it's dangerous, to be honest, and I think people should call it out. And what about where he says, oh, we don't know how many people have died as a result of boat turnbacks, but he conveniently ignores the number that we do know, 1,200 people who were breathing one moment and alive and the next moment they're dead. They never made it. Well, that's it, Ben. And if you speak to the naval personnel and the personnel from the Australian Border Force responsible for pulling the bodies out of the water, I'm sure they would take most offence at Mr Burnside's comments. Now, he may just be after publicity, uh, or maybe he does actually believe what he's saying, which makes it even more dangerous. There was a brief moment there where Fordham started to ask a question that the minister might have to answer, like, how many deaths there are? But then he immediately really? stopped it by saying, but you don't have to answer that because we're just talking about the, the, your figure of deaths. And all you have to do is agree with me. Yes. Oh, great. Cool. <laughs> I, I, I gave you... I, you didn't even have to think of the bullshit answer yourself. I gave you your bullshit answer. And now let's just ignore the whole question and uh, pretend it was never asked. Yeah. Pretend nobody asks how many people are drowning now. I'm not a journalist. I don't care. <laughs> Jeez. Oh. Anyway, I'm, look, I've, I've had enough of Peter Dutton. I oh, am thank God. <laughs> you know what? To hell with it. He does actually in a minute start trying to blame the vast amounts of money that are wasted on it, but we've already made the point. So yeah. you know what? Let's move on. Um, now, Burnside has had a genuine problem this week, which is that uh, they discovered that he was a member of the Savage Club, which is a men's only Melbourne sort of... Um, it's fairly elitist. Like they would call themselves a literary club. It's basically, you know, men sit around and they um, have a have a meeting where they discuss Joyce uh, or um, or they have. But unfortunately, the, the, it's also filled with people who think that you know the British Empire was great and it's got some rather disturbing sort of colonial era pinched from Indigenous people type artifacts in it. It's a bit. It's a sh- It's a thing that I can understand why a young Burnside, when he was a, a QC working mm. with. Um, you know, the corporate world might have been really excited about being a part of, but I think that the more um, socially aware and, and compassionate Burnside probably uh, should have realised sooner than this week that his membership of that club was a problem. Yeah, yeah. It seems like um, that's one of the things before you, you announce that you're running, you clean everything up or you, you, you know, go back through your diary or look at your membership cards or check your yeah. passport. It seems... How did he forget? Like, they charge a lot of money. Like, how does he not know that he's still a member of the Savage Club? Or how is he not conscious that that thing, that that looks really bad? Mm. Mm. Like, yeah. now, I, as it, I mean, a bunch of Labor people have come out. The, the Labor candidate for Kuyong is like, oh, well, if, as you go in uh, to re- resign your membership uh, on Tuesday, Julian, if you could possibly uh, get some of my people's um, artifacts out on your way out the door. Uh, <laughs> good burn. Um, <laughs> Great burn. And fair enough. But on the other hand, you know what? Um, he was a member of a, of a club that's a bit obnoxious and that I think, you know, I think that the law should change that so you can't have those uh, male-only clubs and the, the sort of elitism that's attached there is a shonky. And the fact that the Savage Club, like, portrays itself 
it thinks of itself as actually being, you know, quite an apolitical neutral club. It's got it's got members from the Labour Party and from the Liberal Party, and and now one from the Greens. Um, <laughs> and it thinks of itself as being, um, you know, just a, a, a sort of a quiet place for you know, with, with with history and uh, you know a bit establishmenty. But uh, like, it doesn't think of itself. It doesn't think that it's as bad as say the Melbourne Club. Right. But it's still it's still like you can't walk into the building. Like it's. Um, off that uh, bank place, I think in Coll Street, it's sort of this hidden sort of building, and it's a. But it, when you walk in there, it's very much. It, you can tell that it's a place of elitism and privilege, mm. and given that Burnside is clearly paying the money for it each year, like him, it's yeah, it's a weird thing for him to have missed. But that said, if I have to vote for an MP, uh, I will pick the one who is a member of a shonky club, but will not be voting for us to persecute refugees and commit further crimes against humanity mm. over. The Labor candidate, who may not have been a member of that uh, obnoxious club, uh, but will vote for those crimes against humanity. So, frankly, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Your private life may be revealing of what you will do in public, and it may be something that you should certainly be judged for. And I certainly think less of Julian that he didn't address that earlier. And I think that, you know, simply saying, oh, look, I was too busy doing um, pro bono cases to pay attention to it, I think it's a bit of a cop-out and he should have done better. But that said... He's still a person who I am confident in Parliament will vote in a compassionate way yeah. and where, on issues where I'm not confident that the Labor person will do that because where Julian Burnside has renounced his membership of the Savage Club, the Labor candidate hasn't renounced her party's brutality to refugees. No, no. So they'll keep doing it. So yeah. which is the more harmful person to have in Parliament? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I mean, every, all, all of us have something in the closet and um, all of us should probably clean out our closet a, a bit more often than Julian Burnside apparently did. Oh, I've never um, run for office. But you're right. The person <laughs> the person who um, walks the talk is the one that I'm going to vote yeah. for. Mm. Oh, you mean um, in terms of what they actually do in their public life? Yes, yes. Because he wasn't actually going to the Savage Club, oh, was he? I'm sure he would have gone. He was, I, think he, I don't think he said he hasn't gone. I think he said he's gone you know, a few times. Like, right. he would, he's paying a membership. I'm sure he would go there. Like it's a... If he was a member of the club, he would still go in there and have a drink and have a and sit down. And you know, there are things that they do at the club that are not obnoxious. Like, um, like hmm. the reason I know about it is that my father's a member and I've been in there. Um, I'm, I think it, it sort of sets off all my hackles. So I haven't been in more than um, once. But uh, like, I know that that they're going through um, Faust at the moment. There's a literary thing. So like, it's not 100 percent of the time he's being obnoxious. It is no. still a weird elitist thing that. Even, you know, he's still sitting there going through the literature of the Western canon in a group of men where women are excluded. It's still weird. Um, yeah. And I think that that sort of club, that at, at my parents' generation um, kind of view that, that gender segregation as a, as, a, as a healthy thing. And I think that the generations that came after them, less mm. so. So those clubs, I imagine, will struggle anyway. So it might be one of those things where, um, you know, the economics also solve the problem because they realise that, they, the small group of people that they appeal to, they really need to double that by having women <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, it's just like a men's shed with books. It is a bit, yeah. Um, it, the, the weird artefacts they have because they were established in like the eight, late 19th century, Yeah, they have some weird artefacts and things that they sort of keep, in the same way as the bloody British Museum keeps stuff that they pinch and they think that, you know, they're looking after them. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty shitty, that's a yeah, no. Pretty flimsy excuse, that is. Yeah. So yeah, I get, there was enough that when I walked in there, I'm like, it's really problematic. Like, why? Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, there is a big Australia versus Humanity story, which we do not have time to deal with properly tonight, which is the story of um, segregation, in particularly in the Northern Territory, in hotels <sighs> that was exposed by yes. background briefing. 
we will address it in Australia vs. Humanity next week. I would recommend that in the meantime, uh, listeners have a listen to this week's episode of Background Briefing where they go into it, which is essentially that um, various hotels in the Northern Territory um, have a separate set of crappy rooms that they charge the same amount of money for, but they shove Indigenous people in. Mm. Yep, don't clean them. Put uh, crappy linen in. And, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, it's nice. It's uh, it's it's the sort of stuff that white Australians would be like, no, we've solved all of that stuff. <laughs> we've solved it. By just not telling people that we still do it. Well, we made it unlawful. It is against the law. Like they, mm. these, these organisations uh, have a real problem now. They've been caught oh. doing it. Yeah. Well, see, the thing is that um, they can't. The discrimin- anti-discrimination um, group up there can't do anything about it unless someone who has been discriminated against puts in the complaint. Yes. So even if one of the bodies that, that advocates for them raises yeah. the concern, or even if there's a whistleblower, no. which is what how this one got exposed, they mm. actually need a person. Exactly. They, they, yeah. And, and it's really because the uh, effort that, to go through the whole complaints process is so um, extraordinarily extensive and the um, reward at the end of it is so pathetically small, the compensation is tiny, um, it's really hard to get people to do it. So, they've yeah, they've set up a system where they're like, hey, look, no one complained. Yeah, because you set up the system so yeah. nobody would complain. Well done. And would you necessarily know that you were putting – would you know that not all the rooms in the hotel had hospital-grade linen and chicken bones on the floor? Exactly. You would get it, You would get away with it because people wouldn't know mm. that, that you had – like they don't say to Indigenous people, you'll go to the Indigenous room. They just put them in the rooms that they – Yeah. Like it's opaque. Yeah, you're right. So, look, we definitely need to talk about it and it's chunky as hell. In fact, maybe, yeah. maybe we'll do it with your Suck in My Craw this week and um, we'll, then we'll go on further from it. We'll, I'll play some of the excerpts from the background briefing um, episode where they – like the evidence is pretty strong. Like it's definitely happening. Yes. Yes, But indeed. I think we've – we better leave that one there. So, Green, thank you for coming back. Very much appreciate your uh, your thoughts on, on everything we've discussed tonight. Oh, no, and thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank everybody who has come back. Uh, thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you. You are how the podcast keeps going. We are very much dependent on um, Patreon support, continuing to fund the podcast, keeping on going. Uh, thank you to everybody who's given us a positive review on iTunes. And uh, otherwise, thank you, Robin Gray, for the music. Thank you, Alex Lum, for the artwork. And... We will see you all uh, next week. See ya. Bye.